This episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who donated $1 a month through Craft Sanity's Patreon page. Learn more at craftsanity.com. Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. This is episode 142 of the podcast. Art Prize is underway in Grand Rapids, Michigan. For those of you who don't know about Art Prize, it's an international art competition where significant prize money, we're talking a couple hundred thousand dollars for the top winners. Uh, there's a public vote and also a curated vote where art professionals make uh, their picks of who should win the top prize. And there are actually there are two top prizes, and then there are several $20,000 awards. Artists come from far and wide to be part of this competition that started about six years ago. It's a really fun competition, and it's exhausting for, I think, spectators and the artists alike because people are trying to get the word out about their work, and so a lot of artists will be standing by their work during the competition. For people like me who like to talk to folks who make things, this is prime time. However, I try to be respectful of the fact that these artists need to be out by their work if, to get the most uh, contact and face time with the people who are voting. The first interview that I'm going to share with you is a conversation I had recently with Anila Kayum Aga. She is a very talented artist. She actually teaches, for those of you who are trying to pick out art schools, if you're in the market, you may want to go study drawing at Heron School of Art and Design at Indiana University, where Anila teaches. Her piece in Art Prize is called Intersections, and it's a laser-cut six-and-a-half-foot cube that has a light source on the inside, and it casts the most this just beautiful pattern onto the wall, floor, and ceiling. When I was in there, the very first time I was taking pictures of my family and directly across from me, like through the the cube, I could see a couple kissing on the other side trying to take a picture uh, with their silhouette. It's really inspiring people to do a whole variety of things. The interesting part about this particular entry, like several other entries in Art Prize, is that Intersections is a beautiful entry, but yet the inspiration behind it, as Anila will soon explain, is actually quite negative. The piece is even more inspiring in the sense that she took some very negative emotions and channeled that into creating just something really beautiful. And that, I think, is a real accomplishment. And it's best left to Anila to let her explain this. So I'm going to thank my Patreon sponsors really quick for helping to keep supporting me to do this show every week. I, I love it so much, and I appreciate your support. I also want to thank the kind folks over at ACS Home and Work who have been very kind to sponsor this show going through the end of the year. So I'm excited about that. So I will be podcasting up a storm for weeks to come. And uh, I really appreciate that. All right. So grab a project and a cup of tea and settle in to hear Neela's story. It is an absolute pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. Your our prize entry is really, in a word, stunning. And this particular piece is called Intersections. And can you describe it? So for the folks at home that are listening and they can't see it, what does Intersections look like? Okay, visually, it is very simple and straightforward. It's a sculpture that uh, hangs in the middle of a room. It's got a single light source. 
the cube itself is completely black on the outside as well as the inside. And the light source helps to cast shadows on the surrounding walls and the floor and the ceiling. And that's really as simple as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand that you used a laser cutter to cut designs in the top and bottom and all four sides of the cube. Yes, I did. It it was uh, done on a small laser machine in my studio on the Near East Side in Indianapolis, where my studio is. And it took me approximately 15 months from start of the idea to creating the drawings to converting the drawings for the computer and the laser machine and then cutting it, putting it together, painting it, taking it apart, painting it again from the inside, and then hanging it in the sculpture building at Heron, which is the school I teach at, to make sure that everything worked. You wouldn't want to travel this far and not know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> it would be kind of sad, wouldn't it, if it just exploded at the... <laughs> Is it the same exact pattern on all of the sides and top and bottom? All six sides are the same. They are identical or supposedly they're identical. There may be some minor changes here and there, depending on how I was able to stitch the piece together, okay. you know, to mm -hmm. put it together. But yes, they are supposed to be identical. Is this a pattern that you created, or is this a replica of another pattern that's significant in your life somehow? There are multiple patterns in the piece itself on every single side. I think there may be six or seven patterns individually that were put together, and they all originate from the Alhambra, which is the palace that still is in existence in the southern city of Granada in southern Spain. This palace was built by the Moors who ruled southern part of Spain. It is not from a single source, the pattern, but they come from multiple sources inside the palace, uh, like some from like a ceramic tile, another pattern is from a wooden door jam maybe, or another pattern is from a wall tile pattern. Another pattern is from like the ceiling of a space that I found really interesting. Did you visit the palace yourself then? Yes, I did. I was there and I spent the entire day and I think I took maybe a thousand, maybe twelve hundred photos oh, that my. day. Wow. Yeah. So you, and you... so the the pattern was culled from these various sources and then I kind of modified the design to suit my requirement and the patterns are appropriated from the Alhambra, but they are really my own design now because I put them together and created this uh, new way of looking at it. You worked from photographs, it sounds like. That was your inspiration is the photographs that you brought home with you. Now, did you import those into a computer program or did you start by sketching some things out on paper? I actually sketched it on paper. When I was there, the atmosphere was so amazing. I saw all these people just wandering around this huge complex the looks on their faces, I mean, like, nobody looked, I mean, people were looking down on the floor, they were looking on the ceiling, they were looking on the walls, but it was just like this awe that you could see on people's faces, and they were from all walks of life, they were from various backgrounds, like, there were people from Europe, there were people from Asia, Africa, America, it was just like, there was this huge feeling of awe that I 
could see on other people's faces. So when I came back, I think I was more inspired by the looks on people's faces in reference to how, yeah, it was, it was almost like it was like a religious experience or a spiritual experience that you could see how people were able to feel without having to think back on what their own faith was. It was like a really this amazing synergy that I could feel. And so when I came back to my uh, to my home in Indianapolis, I was like so struck by that feeling that I remember telling a student, some student asked me a question, he said, what kind of work do you do, Anila? And I'm like saying, you know, I, I want to make poetic works, works that can inspire people to cross boundaries. That's what I said like six years ago or five years ago. And I think that was in my mind when I was like starting to think about this project and how to make it and what were some of the criteria that I needed to think about when I was making it. So all that was in my mind when I was starting to draw on piece of paper, then I started cutting out the paper, then I started employing light and shadow to see how it looked. Were you working on very large pieces of paper or did you start smaller? It was very small. They were like 15 by 15 inch drawings that I was drawing. And your finished piece is a six and a half foot cube. (laughs) Yes. As you got closer and closer to your finished project, did you get even more inspired because you were getting closer or were there some frustrations along the way? It's almost like an artist's life becomes entwined with the project that we are working on. It's almost like if you were a surgeon and you were really interested in caring for a patient, how would you, you would keep thinking about it constantly, how to fix this person and what this person needs. It's kind of the same thing. I become so single-minded in my approach and how I'm thinking and what I'm thinking. And it, it's usually started by a conceptual point of view rather than just the making of something. And so I think I become like a person who is obsessed in my head and I'm thinking about it all the time. And then when you start building the projects and you've laid out the plan in your head and you know it's going to work, I see an image in my head like before I even start a project. You know, that image is like an idea of what I want to do. And then I just follow it. And then, yes, there are changes in the studio and there'll be things that may go wrong and there are things that go really well. And so you change your direction a little bit to fit those movements in your studio, it's sort of like being flexible. And when you're that flexible, it allows for things to work better because, yes, anything that you do with so much attention to detail can go wrong often. And there are always little moments of frustration. Why is this not getting done? What what am I doing wrong? How much do I need to do more? And so there's a constant give and take, I think, when you're working in the studio or in any profession. If you're really committed to something, then I think you just go with the flow. But then as things change, you move and you're flexible. You're fluid. From my perspective, it looks like it was truly worth it. Do you feel the same way after all those hours you put into it? Are you very pleased with how it turned out? Absolutely. Now, if I said no, that would be the most I would think so. I would think so. Yeah, sometimes people will say that their finished product turned out kind of in a surprising way they didn't anticipate. Um, but it sounds like for yeah. you, you kind of have a clear picture in your head the whole time of what you were going for and you were able to kind of get that result. To tell you the honest truth, when I turned on the light 
the first time I thought, wow, this is even better than I thought. <laughs> awesome. That's wonderful. Yeah, it went 150% rather than just 120%. It was just like, wow, this is really going to work. Was there anyone else that got to see that first time you turned the light on? Uh, yes, my fabricator who helped me make this project, uh, Steve Rachel was there, and there were four other students and maybe possibly three professors who were helping me hang it. And so they all saw it, and it was just like, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> For a lot of people, this might be the first time they've been surrounded by pattern in that way. But beyond that, when you created this, what was your intention? The first thing that inspired me was that this location, the Alhambra, existed at a time when people lived in harmony, you know, and they belonged to various religions, the three major religions in the world, uh, the Jewish religion, Christianity, and Islam, and people lived in that area, and they all worked well together without really getting into too many fights and stuff. And so that was the first thing that I was struck by, how beauty and joyfulness can change our attitude towards each other. Then the second idea was that when I was in that space in, at the Alhambra, I'm like thinking, this takes me back to my own childhood because I grew up in Pakistan. But a sacred space that is public is a mosque. And usually a mosque in South Asia is really a beautiful, beautiful thing. It has beautiful tiles on the inside. It has beautiful artwork. And women are generally excluded from that space because it's expected that women will pray at home. And uh, the beautiful public space that could be so creative for women and men at the same time, it only belongs to the men. And so I was like, I thought about that and I'm like thinking, this is amazing that you can be part of this beauty and it allows you to be creative and it allows you to have an out-of-body experience. And women in Pakistan are not allowed to feel that way. And so that feeling of exclusion was another reason why I thought, okay, I'm going to make a space that's going to be sacred or spiritual, that's going to rise above all of these religions, and it's going to create a place where anybody of any color, creed, religiosity, sexuality, it doesn't matter what you are, you belong. That was the first layer that I wanted to create. The second layer was that I wanted to discuss the authenticity of where a particular design comes from, or at least talk about it in some way. So things that belong to the Middle East are being used here, and things that were American Indian you know, are used elsewhere. The Aborigine designs from Australia are used in other places. The Nepalese sand paintings. You know, I mean, there's so many things that mo have moved around the world right. that who owns them now? So that was the other thing that I was really interested in. And then I was also very interested in the whole idea of how in the art world we talk about high art, which is conceptual, and then we talk about craft. And I have been the kind of an artist who always marries the craft with the concept. So I wanted to have that discussion as well. And then the last layer that I think was very relevant is the layer of creating the sculpture, but then also the sculpture is no longer the art, but the art gallery becomes the art. 
And anybody who walks through it is part of the art. They are immersed in this feeling of becoming part of the artwork. And so there are multiple layers that you can approach them from various positions, depending on your own personal experience. When you got to watch people react uh, yesterday, were you seeing a similar thing on their faces that passed by uh, that you initially saw in the place that inspired this whole project? Yes, and more so, I think, because, you know, I mean, in a place like here where we are not used to this kind of opulence or this kind of detail or the floral patterning and everything, I think it made it become more alive because the experience was tenfold. It kind of created, hopefully, in the younger people, it would, may have created this feeling that I want to maybe travel because travel definitely opens our minds. In people who are more stationary or who want to stay where they are, maybe they would be inspired to read about other cultures or be more accepting to people of different race or different... You know, I mean, it's it's just, a, for me, it was a way to open minds, in a sense, to kind of create the sense that, okay, nobody is really different. We can all rise together and become this really wonderful way of life or be, become this person who is going to be welcoming to everybody. So it started from a discomforting kind of thing, but it became very comforting because I think spirituality kind of connects humanity across boundaries. Sometimes fine artists don't like to be classified as crafters of any kind, and there seems to be sometimes a separation. What is your perspective? You know, I come from a different time and a different place, I think. And uh, for me, um, you know, to be my own person in this country where I could stand alone and be an individual in my art practice, it was very expensive important to bring my personal experiences into the work and into my artwork and into my art practice. And, you know, some of the first things that I was so aware of was how growing up in Pakistan, I was always a second-class citizen as a female. And females tend to gravitate towards things that are attached to millinery or meaning stitching and embroidery and crocheting. And I was very interested in taking that position where I could say, okay, this is women's work. It has been excluded from the main discourse on art making because it has for the, in the Euro Western tradition, women have only recently been accepted into some of the major museums in the last century, you know. So thinking about that, I'm, I'm like, I came to the conclusion that I was very drawn to uh, embroidery because my mother taught me how to do that very early. How old would you say? I started stitching when I was possibly five years old. She got me a sewing machine. Oh, that's wonderful. And I was making my own clothes in college. I would make my own clothes because also I was really poor. So it helped to be able to make your own clothes. <laughs> so that has been a part of my growing up. And so when I went to grad school, I was like, all of us are looking for a personal expression. And that was the thing that I gravitated towards the most. I decided to incorporate that into the work and it became part of my discourse. 
And now that I think back on it, it was the simplest thing and the best thing I ever did because it allowed me to explore the depths of my own personality, my own character, my own background. And I think art that is strong is usually coming from the heart because you're, you're trying to make work that's true. I have been stitching on paper since like for 10 years now, but I also cut paper and then I incorporate the stitching onto the paper. So they are drawings that are very tactile and very sculptural in their formation because when I frame them, I also have the cast shadows inside the frames from the cutouts and the stitch work. And so it makes them into maybe almost like a three-dimensional drawing. The work you created for Art Prize, it seems like you can draw a line from that back to what you were doing initially with the paper and the stitching. Yeah, it's all connected because, you know, the more you work, like people were asking me, is this the first time you've done it? I would say no. It's the first time that I've done it this big, maybe. And it's the first time that I have explored this medium, which is wood. But I have been doing this throughout my training, up to my professional life, and I continue to explore the complexity of cutouts as well as stitch work, even though in this particular project then there's no stitching, but actually if you looked on the inside of the of the piece you'll realize that the pieces were glued together. It almost looked like a stitching of the Oh pieces. interesting. Inside. So it's sort of like, you know, we we had to create a rib on the inside to make sure that the piece was able to stand alone and, you know, stay firm, although it's really fragile. And so, again, I would think that the craft of anything I do is extremely important to me because I, you know, first, I come from Pakistan. Everything about Pakistani women is that they have to look polished and they have to dress the pot and they have to cook like the best and they they, know, they should know all of these things that make them into women and so ornamentation is extremely important in my country and so that is part of my art practice I think. I mean I can't walk away from it. Like often in grad school during critiques I would be I would have these comments made to me that your things are too beautiful. They're too beautiful and beauty is not a good word in the art world sometimes. People would actually say during an art critique that it's too beautiful? (laughs) Yeah. So how do you react to that? Of course, at that time, this is like 2002, 2003, and 2004, we're talking about, like, at that time, beauty was not something we would be proud of. It was like, it has to mean something, or it has to be either ugly or... If you look back on the articles that were written by some major publications and stuff, we talked a lot about that kind of stuff where beauty was not considered to be very important. I tried making ugly work. It just didn't work for me. (laughs) When you were trying to make ugly work, what was your approach? Well, my approach was that if my teacher or if my professor is trying to make me see the other side of the picture, I should try to do that. Because, uh, you know, first, I'm a woman from South Asia. I'm here in the United States. I'm going to have to make a place for myself. I'm going to have to find a way to convey my concept to the world. These people are the best people to train me to think in that way. I mean, yes, it was harrowing at, at times. It was a lot of times it was very demoralizing because, you know, the critiques were brutal. 
But I think I learned so much from them because it taught me to be strong, first of all. And secondly, to realize that I'm going to have to deal with multiple points of views. You know, when you are a professional artist, you are not going to wow everybody. You are going to have multiple points of view that may actually be, you know, really quite the opposite. And so being able to handle that, being able to say, yes, this is something I need to understand and learn so I can incorporate it if I want to in my work or say, hey, I'm going to defend my work because that's the way I see it. So I think it trained me to see the other person's point of view. And I took it in that tone, in that way, because I'm like thinking, nobody wishes me ill, so why should I take it that way? And often I think young people, when they go to art school, in the beginning they realize how tough it is because the critiques are or can be pretty hard, especially when you've been made to think all through high school that you're brilliant or you're amazing (laughs) and your work is awesome and you know how to draw. So I think that's where people get scared. But I was at that point in my life where I'm like, thinking, yeah, I'm going to kick ass. I'm going to make this <laughs> to this time because <laughs> I remember one of my uh, professors, wonderful, wonderful art history professor, kind of asked me one time where I was from and what I did. And then she said to me, you have three jeopardies against you, don't you? You're a woman from Pakistan who's making work about women. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to have a tough time. And I'm like, I looked at her and I was like, yes, that's very true, very insightful. I hope that person comes and sees your art prize entry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was awesome. She was just some, one of my best professors. Did you grow up in Pakistan and then move to the United States for college? I did. I went to art school in Pakistan. I went to get my admission at the public school. By public, I mean in Pakistan, it's a state-run school. So it wasn't extremely expensive because the supplies were so expensive. You had to apply to the school and then they would invite you in to do an interview and some tests. So they asked me to draw the human body and there's this guy sitting in front of us and we did a test of that. And then, you know, they checked whether we could read and write in English and stuff like that. And there may have been possibly 4,000 people who'd applied to get admission in that school, and they were taking possibly 200 people only. Oh, wow. So I was very lucky that I got in. And I was very young, and but it was just the best thing. It was like, wow, this is amazing. And I think I was... I was not unhappy a single day while I was going to that school. It was my undergraduate education. And then I completed it. And a few years after we moved to the United States, I got here in the spring of 2000. And then you went on for a master's degree in art then? Yes. Um, I tried to find work here because I had quite a bit of textile industry experience. But Dallas was not the best place to find a job in the fashion industry. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's not really um, linked into that so much. Yeah. (laughs) No, I I would have had to move to California, I think. So I decided to go back to school because it was, you know, and I'd always wanted to teach. So it was like a good thing to do. And then we had the best, one of the best universities within the vicinity of Dallas. 
So I joined the University of North Texas, and I graduated in three and a half years. What was your concentration there? Fiber arts. Did you do weaving and service design? What was your specialty area? I was more interested in surface design, and I was very interested in anything that was image-oriented. Okay. And then I did take a couple of classes, or maybe possibly just one weaving class, and I realized I did not like that. (laughs) (laughs) So you moved to Indiana for the teaching job that opened? They advertised, and I applied, and then they invited me for a campus interview, and I came up, and um, I really liked it. Indiana is a really pretty little place. It is. I've been to a journalism conference on your campus. Mm -hmm. It's really pretty. So you decided this is where I'm going to (laughs) be. Well, I wanted to be here, and then they decided that they wanted me here. (laughs) It was good. It was great that they hired me, and since then, I, I live on the near east side of downtown Indianapolis, and it's great. It's like a beautiful, nice area. The city is growing. It's becoming more and more dynamic. I think there are lots of people from outside the state are coming in. We have a very large population for the, for the university. There's a large medical school that brings in international students a lot. And so there's a sense of like growth which is just fabulous to see here. And I think what I've noticed the same in Grand Rapids, too. I think this whole process with the art prize, you're bringing in so many people from outside of the state. It's creating this beautiful flow of new ideas that's happening in the Midwest now. I think it's the same. It's on a smaller scale here in India, but I think like Grand Rapids, tied in onto that idea of bringing in new ideas. And the only way you can do that is by getting people from the outside come in. Uh, what led you to enter Art Prize? Have you entered before or is this your first time? You know, the people who organize the Art Prize, some of the, those people, you know, like the top people in there, I think maybe one of them came to Indy like a few years ago and they did a lecture or showed us some slides and stuff and I was in the audience. Okay. And I was like blown away with this idea. I'm like, this is amazing what these guys are doing. I wish we could do it here. And in some small scale, we tried here in Indy during the, the Super Bowl week when we had one of our large downtown Indy buildings that used to be the old museum. There was an installation show that was put in there by um, many artists. And it was just the most synergetic moment for at least the artists, because it was like, wow, combining it with the sporting event, but adding the cultural part to it, culture and art, I think was just the best. And so you guys have taken it, maybe not even steps, but a mile ahead of what we try to do here in Indy. And so um, hearing uh, that gentleman talk about what it was all about and what it was doing for your city was like the most amazing thing. And I'm like, I would love to participate in this. And so I sent in my request early this year and I was able to get in. And I was very lucky that I was able to complete a hosting agreement with Graham, which really worked out because they gave me a wonderful space to exhibit it in. When you were applying, did you apply for that particular space or did they just agree to host you and then you they assigned you a space? How did that work exactly? They did all that themselves. My only requirement was that the piece had to be shown in a space 
with at least minimum 15 feet high ceiling, and it should be at least 30 feet square or, you know, 30 by 40 or 30 by 20, but there had to be one side that would at least be 30 feet. And so they, they did me proud. They they said they had a space that was 43 and, and a half square or something. So it was bigger than my anticipation, but it worked out really well. What happened when you turned the light on, when it was installed, <laughs> and you turned the light on? Were there people from Grand Rapids standing there from the Gram? Were there yeah, people? the curator, Cindy Buckner, was there. Erwin Urquitz, he was there. There were a bunch of young people who helped to install it. And uh, Steve Pritchell, my fabricator, was there. We were all there, and we turned on the light, and it was like, okay, this is going to (laughs) work. The question that journalists are always asking artists is, what would you do if you won? Well, hopefully, if I were to win, um, God willing, (laughs) or whoever's out there willing, (laughs) um, I would want to fund some more projects for the future where I can kind of create, you know, hopefully the same kind of feeling. And then I would like to invest in my son's education and then just continue to produce art that changes people's lives. I, I think I would stay off my studio, <laughs> you know, <laughs> get some art supplies that are desperately needed, maybe possibly upgrade my laser machine and get a bigger one. So many things help my family in Pakistan. I don't know. There are so many things I would like to do. Travel some. Maybe visit Turkey next year and maybe go to Germany and visit Berlin. And then uh, definitely visit the biennial in Venice. So you have quite a list of things. <laughs> well, I hope it happens for you. That would be wonderful. And um, uh, yeah, how much family do you have in the United States? I just have a, a cousin who lives in Detroit. Maybe he may come if I were in the running some cousins on the East Coast in Washington, D.C., I doubt that they would come. They're too far away. And then my best friend and fabricator, Steve Pritchell, would be there. And possibly my son would come. How old is your son now? He's going to be 20. Is he an artist as well? He is a rap artist. He oh, a rap a artist. Wants well, to, yeah. well, that's really fun. Yeah, so maybe he can use one of your pieces in a, in a music video or something. <laughs> you know, it's so fun is this young man from Washington, D.C. contacted me some weeks ago after looking at the pictures online, I think. And he is part of this group that uses Sufi music okay, yeah. from, the, from South Asia. And he said he would like to shoot a video with that in the background. So I was like, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> right. So you might have some, there might be some rental opportunities for, for this piece. <laughs> the only it, problem is you need a huge space and you need to install it. It all is going to be pretty uneconomical. <laughs> have you done any photography of this yourself? I have taken lots of photos and a lot of people have been taking a lot of photos. I hope to be able to come back this coming weekend and maybe do some more. But I've only taken them with my iPhone, so I think maybe if I brought my camera in and, you know, like actually took photos of people while they're in that space, because that is the most gratifying thing to see. Uh, People are dancing and they're taking pictures (laughs) against the shadows. And, you know, what's really interesting is that in the photos that I've gotten so far, 
the pattern becomes part of their clothing. Mm-hmm. And that is so awesome. So you can kind of see the shadow as well as their silhouette, as well as the pattern on their bodies. And it's pretty nice. It's wonderful to see. Has there anyone said anything surprising or particularly funny or memorable? Everybody said uh, more or less that they love it. They find peace in there. They feel like they've crossed into a spiritual space, a sacred space. don't know if I would say that anybody said anything bad about it. One woman asked if any Muslim women had come to it. And I'm like, I don't, nobody's really told me what their faith is. And I don't <laughs> right. want to be the person who's going to assume that, right. you know, women of a different faith are coming in and seeing it. So that was the only surprising thing I would think. I don't know if there's anything else that you would like to share either about your entry or just your path as an artist. Well, one thing I would say, my postcard's finished, so I'm ordering new ones. So oh, my really? number so you're for completely... voting. Oh, you're already out. <laughs> how many did you, how many did you order to start with? I had ten thousand pieces made. Oh, ten thousand wow. postcards, and, and they gone. all went away. So, so wow. currently, I would like you to post my voting number, which is five seven four four five. If you would, that would be nice. So in case people are asking, I was surprised. I mean, like when people were telling me they've they've uh, got like that many amount of postcards, I was like. That's a little overkill, <laughs> but like, okay, I stand corrected. <laughs> well, congratulations. It seems to me that this is well-deserved. You've been working hard for a long time. It was an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you, so I really do appreciate that. Thank you so much for talking to me and being so kind and so interested. It means a lot. I really appreciate it, and uh, I thank Grand Rapids for doing this, and I thank all of the people who came and viewed the work, and not just mine, but everybody else's, and appreciating artists. Uh, I think we work a lot, and we try to convey, you know, the fears of the time, the good times, as well as the bad times, the politics, the social issues, and I am so glad that at least your city is allowing artists to talk like this. It's, It's a wonderful opportunity. I really appreciate it. A very special thanks to Anila for sharing her story on the podcast with us. For those of you who are curious about what this piece looks like, head over to craftsanity.com and check it out. And I can uh, put some other links to see some of Anila's other work. I'll also publish a link to the art prize results. So those of you who don't live in town can check those out. If you do live in the area within driving distance, I encourage you to come down and check out art prize Okay, I'd like to thank my Patreon sponsors once again and the folks at ACS Home and Work. Thanks for keeping me podcasting, folks. I really do appreciate it. I'm going to be doing a little giveaway this week on my blog and Instagram feed. I'm going to give away uh, a printed tea towel that I actually, I, I get my towels that I print on through ACS. I have a couple giveaways planned. One is going to be just some blank product that they put out, some vintage-inspired tea towels that are just striped, but very, very nice. And then I will also be doing a giveaway for a Craft Sanity tea towel that's my own design. So look for those at craftsanity.com. You also can follow my Instagram feed, which I update daily, and I am craftsanity on Instagram. And also feel welcome to send me any requests you might have for upcoming guests, 
Jennifer at craftsanity.com is my email address, and I'm always happy to hear from you, dear listeners. So thanks for tuning in, folks. I really appreciate it. And I will be back soon with an interview with another Art Prize artist, Ryan Spencer Reed, documentary photographer. So look for that in the coming days. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at CraftSanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at CraftSanity.etsy.com. Thank you.